evening and welcome to another edition of RPG Coast to Coast. I'm your host, Brian, from Lost Relic Industries, and our guests will introduce themselves in order of initiative. Am I the highest initiative? <clears throat> you are indeed the highest initiative. All right. Well, I am uh, Alexander McCreese, uh, Archon in my Discord platform. Uh, I'm the lead designer and owner of Autark and creator of Adventure Conqueror King. Hi, my name is Mark, and uh, I go by VB online, and uh, I am the uh, founder of Elthos RPG, dating back to 1978, and I'm working currently on the Mythos Machine, which is a web application that uh, supports the Elthos RPG with world building and character management uh, stuff. Pretty great. All right, thanks. Okay, I guess I'm the last one here. Uh, my name is Alan, and I am the creator of the Chronicles of Ember um, Old World uh, Old School RPG OSR, and it's it's fun. <laughs> it's a thing to do. Um, that's really all I've got for now. Let's let's get it going. Cool, uh, Alexander. Would you like to pick a topic for us? <clears throat> yes, that would be great. Uh, let's see. Where is the topic list? I'm not seeing it. Should it be, should be in the RPG Coast to Coast chat, but uh, don't feel constrained as long as it's related to the RPG industry. Topic list, anyone? Oh, okay, I see it. Is it time for a superhero OSR? Are there too many fantasy settings when you tire a pack and slash? How to mix it up without overtaxing the DM? Well, is it time for a superhero OSR was my submission because I'm actually um, about to release a superhero role-playing game in February. So uh, am I allowed to pick my own submission? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like it's time. Did I lose you guys? No, no, I said it, you can absolutely choose your own uh, topic, hello, hello. so it sounds like, can you not hear us? I can't hear hello? anymore. <clears throat> no one else is talking, I can't hear you. Should I hang up and come in again? Shit. All right. <laughs> yeah, uh, go ahead and come back, no uh, and we'll no start talking vision. about OSRs. <laughs> So it sounds like he has an exciting superhero OSR. Um, man, I haven't played a, a superhero game in a long time. Um, does anybody else have anything to add to that? I've seen them, but I've never had the pleasure of actually sitting down and playing one. I've heard of a few things online, uh, City of Heroes and whatnot, but I've never actually mm -hmm. had something sit down at the table and give it a shot. <clears throat> what is that? Uh, uh, Mutants and Masterminds, I believe, is a uh, is a superhero OSR. All right, there it is. Okay, great. Sorry about that. Hey, we're here. <laughs> That's so terrible. Um, yeah, so uh, I am actually creating a a role playing game called Ascendant. It's inspired by um, my two favorite uh, role playing games from the 1980s, which were um, Marvel uh, Heroes by TSR, aka Phase Rip and DC Heroes by Mayfair Games, a.k.a. Megs. And um, I, I took what I liked from both of those systems and, and uh, synthesized them, brought them together into a very fast-playing RPG that is um, 
Uh, it's also uh, very mathematically elegant the way DC Heroes was, the way Meg's was. So, um, you know, I, I just got out of running a Mutants and Masterminds campaign, and it's a great game, but it has all the same flaws that all of the sort of current iteration 3.5-ish games do, which is, you know, everything is slow and complex and overburdened, and, um, you know, I really wanted to get back to the halcyon days of when I really loved running superhero games. So you're basically trying to strip the game down to a to a playable mechanic. Is that sort of the approach here, or I guess uh, right, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. If you remember, both Phase Rip and um, Megs both used uh, you know a uniform table resolution, and you just don't see that used very much in design anymore. Um, but I think it, and I'm not sure why um, it seemed to have fallen out of favor. But I decided to go back to that concept and make a single table. Um, you know, color chart just like they use in Conan or, uh, or mm -hmm. Phase Rip, um, and uh, and it just plays so fast. Um, and you just put the, the the table is small enough you can put it on your character sheet, mm -hmm. and so it's just right there in front of you. It's just beautiful. That's that's pretty neat. Um, yeah, I, I'd seen other games do that uh, back in the '80s, and I haven't really seen it replicated as much lately. Um, I, I think. Uh, there were there were some good implementations and then there were some not so great implementations uh, at the time. I, I if if it's what I'm imagining or what I'm remembering, I think Iron Crown did some things that way. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, the Chill game was largely that way. Although I felt like in Chill it was very homogenized. Like it it felt like uh, because of the table, it felt like the skills. The results always were kind of homogenous to me, but maybe that was just my experience in playing the game. It didn't feel like there was a great deal of distinction, let's say, between one combat skill and another. I don't know. Um, no, I agree. I would agree with you on that on chill, I, partly because I think it was limited because they were doing you know real real world human beings without an enormous amount of magic power or magic weapons, mm -hmm. and you know so Bob the investigator was pretty similar to Jim the ex cop, who was similar to. You know, yeah. Todd, the used car salesman who'd seen an alien, and it was just, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was like the design approach during that time period. It's sort of subsequent to Dungeons and Dragons, and you know, you had Star Frontiers used a uniform chart in Zebulon Sky. Oh, you had that's right. You had yeah. Conan did. You had the James Bond RPG by Victory Games did that. Um, Gosh, I'm sure there were others, but it was just, it was everywhere. So anyway, so I, I kind of went back to that, and, mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really glad I did. Cool. Uh, so what, like, what, what dice system are you using? Is it, um, is it like a it's, percentile, or is it? It's percentile, yeah. So what happens okay. is you, you take an attribute, you compare it to your, the other guy's attribute. Um, that gives you what's called the result value. It's just you know, the action value minus the difficulty value. And mm -hmm. then you find that on the chart, you roll dice, and you either get red, orange, yellow, green, or white. With red is the most is the best success, green is a marginal success, white's a failure, which is the same color <coughs> combinations that were used in Phase Rip. And um, you know, and then uh, if you you know if you hit, uh, you do green is base damage, yellow is double damage, orange is quadruple okay. damage, okay. etc. So there'd be distinction based on you know what you hit with. Versus, yeah, there's twelve. There's like yeah. twelve different damage types. You could do like penetrating damage or thermal okay. damage. 
And if you roll red results, you trigger special effects. So like a bludgeoning attack will send you flying back with knockback. A lacerating attack will cause you to start bleeding. A thermal attack sets you on fire. So I'm going to be like just straight up, you know, like as far as uh, superhero games, I think back, you know, back in the 80s, most of the games that you mentioned uh, earlier, I, I played Conan briefly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Top Secret, uh, James Top Bond. Top Secret was a great one. Yeah. Uh, you know, Star Frontiers real briefly, too. I mean, <laughs> a lot of these games. Uh, but I didn't play a lot of superhero games. I played, I think I played, there, there was a DC one that I played yep. once. Yep, the DC one was great. Um, yeah. And I didn't really learn a lot about it. It was, but it was really easy. I mean, the, the, the game master basically could just hand me a sheet and say, pick your powers or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the closest thing, and I don't know if this counts, was uh, I, I played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course, so, I I had that, and they had the supplement. There was ninjas and super spies, and then heroes mm-hmm. unlimited, and you could integrate them all together. Yeah, we we had all sorts of ridiculous shenanigans with that game. So, what what would you say makes a great superhero game? Like, what's different between making a superhero game versus the the fantasy uh, genre? Well, let me let me start by what I think is similar about the two, and and why I love the genre. So, I think I think it. RPGs are, are played in groups, right? So it's, it's, it's generally a, a, party of a, a party of friends playing together. And I think one of the problems an RPG runs into is when there aren't enough niches for everyone to fill. Like Western games have this problem. Like if I'm the cool gunslinger, what other niche is there for you to be? Like, okay, maybe you're the, like the cool Native American scout and then you also are a gunslinger. Or maybe, you know, like there's just a really narrow number of niches. And um, fantasy has a huge number of niches to fill, and the other genre that has the most niches to fill is superheroes, because you can be the blaster, the tank, the scrapper, you know, the defender, the mind controller. Um, And so I think what is challenging about superheroes is that you have to, um, you know, first you have to be able to handle everything that's already in the real world in a modern game, which is itself a challenge. Uh, and then you have to be able to figure out all of these unanticipated possible combinations for the powers. And um, for the most part, there's like two approaches to that, right? So people either create descriptor-based games or they make effect-based games. And, you know, in a descriptor-based game, um, which was like the Marvel Cortex game, you know, I have a flight power, and then I can kind of describe how, how I use flight. Flight is mostly just... It's, it's kind of like a fluff, and then I can use flight to create a sonic boom as I fly past or, or whatever I'd like. Um, and then an effect-based game is the opposite. An effect is you literally are purchasing effects with points, and you can only do exactly what the effect that you purchased is, even if logically or flavor-wise or by the fluff, you should be able to do some other stuff. Um, and an example of that type of game is Champions. So I tried to take a different route, and um, the game I've been building is is physics-based. So all of, the, uh, all of the effects, essentially, you can do anything that you could do if you actually had that effect, um, and you can't do the things that you can't, which has been a very challenging design, but it does create all sorts of really neat opportunities for emergent play and integration of different skills and powers that we've seen in playtest. So if you're if, if you've got this physics-based uh, <clears throat> engine you're talking about, how do you adjudicate this 
do you do this on the fly? Is it whatever sounds good at the moment? Do you have a set of rules or guidelines that you go by? Or does everybody just sit around and see who can make up the best story? Or uh, how do you handle that? Um, well, everything in the game is quantified, uh, similar to how DC Heroes did it with logarithmic numbers. So two is twice as good as one, three is twice as good as two, four is twice as good as three. And that, and that is literally everything. So not just like your character ability scores, but income in the game, time, distance, weight, density, area, volume, intensity of fires, temperature, um, amount of money you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, energy, energy you can exert, everything. And so um, it lets you convert them all on the fly in a realistic manner. So if I want to know, well, I want to pick up a car and throw it, Okay, you know, that's, that's pretty easy to do. You know, what if I want to set the car on fire and then blow the fire into a building? How long will it take for the building to, to, to burn down? You can actually do that in the game with essentially simple addition of intensity of fire, volume of the house, and you're done. And it's all been based on, like, the fire, the fire rules are all based on firefighting manuals that I downloaded and read. So, you know, the actual volumes of water you need are the right volumes of water to put out fires, and et cetera, et cetera. It's been um, it's, it's been two years of development and research, so it's pretty intense. That sounds like it. That sounds great. Um, in the in the example of the fire, could could you just like step through like a you know sort of like quickie example? I just want to see how the mechanics actually works. Yeah, sure. Let me actually. Um... Let me actually set something on fire. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. I'm going to. Realism on the show. Dun, dun, dun. Ah, ah, ah! Okay, what intensity? What intensity? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you guys are dedicated. You're just dedicated. All right, so I'm just I'm pasting some stuff into the channel here so that we can all see it. Yay! <clears throat> all right, so basically what you're seeing there is the um, is the rules for firefighting in the game. So unlike a lot of games, I spend as much time on non-combat as on combat. So there's rules for putting out fires, stopping tsunami, dealing with an asteroid strike, you know, negotiating with hostage takers defusing bombs, like all of the sort of saving the day type stuff if you wanted to play like a Mission Impossible campaign. Mm. Um, so anyway, so what you can see is, so fires are rated with an intensity, um, and then fires are rated with a volume, and the magnitude of a fire is its intensity plus its volume. Because when you deal with logarithmic math, multiplication is replaced with addition. So if, you right. have a, so if you have a volume of 10 and you have an intensity of 5, then it's a 15 magnitude fire. Um, the intensity of the fire tells you how much damage you take, um, which is just a matter of applying that value against your character's protection. Um, then you can, you know, you can see uh, there's a quick formula for how long it'll take a structure to burn down, and it's, um, you know, the time to burn a building down is the structure toughness over two, the thermal protection over two minus the fire magnitude over two. So it takes about five seconds to figure out how long it'll take to burn down a skyscraper for any given intensity of uh, any given magnitude of fire. 
Um, and again, and it's all it's actually all been based on actual research. So you could say you could actually use the game to calculate how long it would take to burn your house down if you felt like committing arson. Um, and then the uh, and then you have uh, the rules for putting out fire. You know, the time to extinguish the fire is the fire magnitude minus the weight of the water. Um, and then I have volume and weights of water you can get from different sources. And this is again straight out of um, firefighting handbooks. Uh, and the whole game is kind of like this. So, uh, so let's say you're a water controller, and you're like, okay, there's this terrible raging fire in the Empire State Building. I want to use my water control to move the freestanding water tower to flood the Empire State Building and deactivate the fire. You know, you can actually say, okay, well, a freestanding water tower is 18 SPs of weight, and I have SP is super metric point. I have 20 SPs of water control, so I can move the water. And then, you know, does that put out the fire? How long does it take, et cetera? So it's, uh, it's pretty neat. It's pretty elegant. Well, this definitely strikes me as something that was more difficult to put together than it would be to actually use in-game. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it took two years. Uh, I'm glad you did this so I don't have to do this. <laughs> it also sounds like... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, it sounds fun because it sounds like you get to basically go on, you know, the rampage that you see the uh, superheroes and villains do in the movies, you know, like just, just demolish the city while they're trying to save it. Oh, yeah. And that's been happening in the playtests. We, um, we did a, a hilarious playtest where a time controller um, and a fire controller had to stop like a, a bomb threat, a hostage taker bomb threat. And, um, and they flubbed it because the time controller stopped to take selfies of himself with the bomb and didn't pull it out in time for the fire, uh, and the fire controller set the room on fire while the bomb was still there. And, um, and so we like blew up the school, you know, mass casualties, buildings oh, went fly. I mean, it was just fantastic. So this is the chart, by the way. So it's the challenge action resolution table or chart. Um, and uh, all you would do, so like, let's say you want to attack somebody, you subtract, you know, their agility from your agility, and then this tells you the chance to hit. Now, here's something that's really neat. So look at the chart. So let's say that I've got an agility of five, and you've got an agility of five. So you're looking at an RV of zero, so I have a 50% chance to hit you. Now, let's say I've got an agility of six, and you've got an agility of five. So I'm one point better than you. But that's supposed to mean I'm twice as good as you. All right, well, now I have a 67% chance to hit you because I'm plus one. And you have a 35% chance to hit me, so you're because uh, so, you're minus one against me. So voila, I'm twice as likely to hit you as you are to hit me because I'm twice as good as you. So in other words, the logarithms are actually built into the um, uh, into the chart itself, which is really nice because it means when you trade off between damage and accuracy with like a power attack, mathematically your expected results are always the same, and you're just changing the variance and the standard deviation. Good. Well, that was a good sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> this is why math nerds play games. Yes, 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 for sure. Are you a math major by any chance? No, I'm actually a history major and a, a law major, a law school guy. Okay. I was wondering because I'm a physics major myself, and... The number of people that I know who would care to even know what a logarithm is, much less incorporate them into a game, I can probably count those guys on one hand. 
And it's just not, uh, it, it's just unexpected, but uh, you're absolutely right about everything you say. And it does seem to be a very elegant solution to a problem I didn't even know that I had. Dun, dun, dun. I hope so. <laughs> um, if you guys want to give it a test out, I'm running play tests every day um, on my uh, Autark <clears throat> Discord. So um, anyone, open invite for anybody who'd like to drop by, take a look at the play test rules and, and you know, join in the fun. Um, see if you can also manage to blow up an entire school of school children because you're taking selfies. So, <laughs> well, like you do, like you do, <laughs> like you do, yeah. Was, was so, that the hero that was doing that? The selfies? Oh yeah, huh? yeah. Speedy yeah. Bop was his, what was okay. his name before he was blown to pieces? So, uh. Yeah, in fact, the guy who did it is one of the people who's backed me a lot on Kickstarter, so I'm like kind of <laughs> tempted to torture him by making it an official event in the game's backstory and put it in there. <laughs> oh, man. So, Well, I think I used up my topic time, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> no, this was, this was really cool. Um, it's definitely a, a cool solution, and I feel like the what you've come up with seems to work really you know, sounds like it works really well for the genre. Um, and that's, that's one thing, like, I, I, I'm kind of tired of seeing 5e mechanics ported to every genre and every game, because I don't think it's always the right fit. Yeah, I agree completely. I agree. It's almost like the, like, um, the, uh, the virtue of game design has been lost, because we're so focused on 5e that, um, you know, it becomes all about the content that you create and the story and the art, um, and very few people are really trying to do innovative um, design, I don't think. Um, and, and maybe the market just doesn't reward it, and, and I'm going to fall on my face and uh, have wasted two years, so, you know, let's talk in six months. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, surely it's not that bad. Hopefully yeah, I don't, Hopefully I don't see it as a, even, I mean, if it's something that you're passionate about, though, I mean, I think that's why most of us are doing it. I've heard so many times said on here that nobody's doing this for the money. I mean, yeah, sure, everybody wants to get paid, but, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, I want yeah. a big pile of money. I'd love but, it. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, the reality is, is we're probably doing it first because we enjoy this a lot. And, um, yeah, we're not you know, likely to make out like um, Wizards of the Coast did or Paizo or whatever. But um, I think, you know, you've got something cool there. And um, it it sounds, yeah, it sounds innovative. And, and eventually people are going to come around to that. People, like they did in the 80s. We did, um, even TSR realized it, you know, and, and they started doing other things uh, with their game systems. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I'm sharing a picture of uh, my favorite character from the game. She's the blind ninja assassin Helen Killer. <laughs> nice. So it's a very not politically correct game, I, I'm guessing. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't go out of its way to not be politically correct. It just <laughs> but isn't it's just, because I'm yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah, it's I just... Mean, here's another, I mean, I guess maybe it's not politically it correct. It seems very not... slapstick in a lot of ways. Here's another. Uh... <clears throat> so this is uh, this is the world's uh, most popular superhero. She was a major reality TV star before her mutations developed. 
uh, sort of like Kim Kardashian meets Starfire. Uh, her butt's too small. Her butt's too small. That's true. That's true. She needs. Don't be a hater. Hashtag Namaste. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, and then the awesome J.E. Shields did the cover. Oh, I guess I can show the cover. Let's see. There we go. All right. Because every good superhero game needs to have a American in red, white, and blue saving the world. Too big to, to paste. You can take a look at it. Oh, okay. Let's see. What do I have that'll open a TIFF file? Oh, shit. I pasted the TIFF. That's why it's not working. One, <laughs> I am... That's all right. I am tiff Let's see. So it's a full-on patriotic hero, I guess. Yes. Hang on. Here we go. Okay. I got it now. I got it. I got it. Here we go. Never. Okay, here we go. It's also got the game logo. Hey, I spent half my time looking for things I had just a minute ago myself. <laughs> right, I know. Well. There we go. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Oh, yeah, it's Def like, uh, I see. Definitely patriotic, yeah. <clears throat> so he's kind of Superman meets Captain America. He's the goody, right. goody two-shoe of the uh, of this thing. All these characters, by the way, are from my home campaign. Okay, who's doing oh. your artwork here? Uh, this <clears throat> is J.E. Shields, and then the other two pieces are by some um, comic book artists uh, that I have been, I've been working with a, a comic book agency to help you with. Oh, so, nice! Yeah, so it's gonna be some. It's gonna be some really beautiful art, I think. Well, that yeah. is really impressive. Yeah, those do look really good, by the way. Thank you, thank you. We'll I kind of, I, I kind of like the wings on that guy. It's like, um, the, you know, I mean, it's like, a, is he is he a bird? He's, Ameri he's an Amer American eagle. Ah, that's it. Okay, I got it. <laughs> All right. uh, of course. I thought it was something like that. Okay. Yep, yep. And North yep. Scorpion said something about the logo, and I must admit that that is quite impressive. I really do like the design there. Yeah, that's a fancy. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate. I used to work in digital media, and when I was in that job, I had this um, this woman who worked for me who was just the best logo designer I've ever met. Like, she sits down and shits out logos that are better than 90% of the people in the world. <laughs> the visual and now is is not right, but yeah. <laughs> that was a very uncouth and gauche way to say that. But anyway, um, she's just amazingly talented. So I'll be like, hey... This is the name of the game. Think Marvel movie, and she just comes back with 
you know, 12 selections of amazing logos. <clears throat> You know, nice. that would have taken me a lifetime to create. And she's like, oh, are these okay? <laughs> I don't like any of them, but if you think they're good, you can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly how she is. It's so funny. You know? And I'm like, you're a goddess of design. Well, this has been pretty cool. Um, the uh, gosh, I feel like we we already started product promotion, but it's cool. It's <laughs> this is nice. Uh, yeah, no, it's I I always like to to ask and to talk because it's like that's what people want to know. They want to know you know what you're up to, what you're working on, you know, things like that. And this is pretty neat. Cool. Um, so well, where where can so. we go find it? Well, it's going to kickstart in February. Oh, okay. Cool. Yep. So the game, the game's done. It's at. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Two hundred thousand words. Two hundred six thousand words. Um, and uh, so it's written, but it needs a lot of art. So we're going to kickstart it and uh, and get everything looking beautiful. So as a as another designer, designer to designer, um, how did you build your following on here? Because man, I am like. I everybody that plays my game at cons is like it's it's great I get followers but the problem is is it's just the people at the table that played the game and uh of course I'm in the fantasy RPG space and trying to get enough yeah. people to like crowdfund something um so how did, how did you go about that Uh honestly I think it was just dumb luck um uh we launched Adventure Conquer King right at the height of the popularity of the old school renaissance in 2010 and um, it was before 5th edition was even in playtesting. Yeah. Uh, people were dying for new content. And um, Kickstarter was the new hot platform. It was still the Wild West. So if you had anything that was halfway decent, the Kickstarter itself would promote you. Um, and we happened to have a couple of the big bloggers at the time that were our buddies. And, you know, the first product, um, you know, so we ended up doing like $20,000 for Axe. Um, essentially, like sort of blundering into it and uh and then it's just been a matter of over the last nine years each year i've done one kickstarter um you know i've delivered on all of them so people sort of reliably know like hey if i back this i'll actually get a product um yeah you know i have a mailing list of about 750 people and a patreon of a couple hundred so you know i mean i'm ultimately i'm selling to less than a thousand people it's just less than a thousand people for whom you know my game is the game they like Well, I am highly jealous. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like I, think, <clears throat> I thought about actually um, starting just a fresh company under a pseudonym and and releasing a game that way to see how it does. Just you know, because there's some people on the internet that occasionally say unkind things about me, and I thought maybe a clean slate would be helpful. But I think, frankly, it's you know, a bad reputation is better than no reputation right now. Yes, there will always be haters, Datum, but have you ever been called a, uh, a founder of a terrorist network personally responsible for the deaths of dozens to hundreds of people? <laughs> he says, I've been called at all. Okay, well, you're in good <laughs> okay, company, then. brother. Okay. <laughs> Quite the interesting CV you've got there, but yeah. Well, uh, 
let's we've got some other topics here today so let's and we can come back to this too i think people are gonna have questions um uh mark are you uh do you want to pick the next topic for us or uh sure yeah um but i think it's kind of related to the actual current topic <laughs> which is excellent yeah uh and i'm kind of curious about this because uh we sort of tackled the question but we didn't really, uh, you know, kind of like grapple with the real actual question, which is, is this a good time for a superhero RPG? And I think that that is kind of related to the other topic, in my mind at least, is, you know, is the market saturated with uh, fantasy RPGs? And so I think those two questions are related. And uh, so I want to kind of wrap that together and just ask, you know, what is a genre now that is on the cusp of becoming the popular genre. And I'm kind of thinking of it in terms of, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people producing uh, settings now and uh, a lot of them, you know, are really interesting, but yeah, I kind of think that there's uh, sort of like a surplus in a way of fantasy. I'm not so sure about um, superheroes. So just kind of want to raise that question. Is anybody seeing out there like kind of like edge genres that might become popular going forward? And uh, so that's my question. I think <clears throat> cyberpunk is poised for um, a big boom. You know, you've got the cyberpunk 2077 um, computer game coming is going to reignite people's interest in that. Uh, there's like the slowly dawning awareness that we actually do live in a technological dystopian hellhole, and um, <laughs> well said. And I well think said. that here, here. that is kind of making people interested, um, you know. And it just becomes really easy to imagine plausible, you know, plausible dark futures in the year 2050 or 2075. So um, I was I was really waffling whether to do superheroes or cyberpunk for my next game, and um, I ultimately went with superheroes because when I found out that uh, Artel Sorin was releasing Cyberpunk 2077, and um, Mike Pondsmith gave me my first ever uh, opportunity to publish in the tabletop game industry, and so I just felt like uh, I just felt like it would be uh, it would be a, a fool's errand to try and directly go head to head with their launch, so. But I well, do think it'll be a, a big genre explosion. Well, for my part, it seems, I may be cynical about this, but it does seem that the superhero genre is kind of the thing that's taking off right now with all the Marvel and DC movies. I know we're like 87 movies deep in this over the last like six months or something like that, but they're everywhere. And that's what's in everybody's headspace right now. So to jump in with a superhero game, that's uh, you've you've got this massive structure that you can just piggyback off of and people are already receptive to it they've shown that at the box office over and over again and if you get five percent of those people you only wind up with a dump truck full of money <laughs> that's what you want to go with i could use a dump truck full of money right now i have like uh, a tonka <laughs> toy full it? of money um would i swim in it yes yes I <laughs> Probably naked. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh. <laughs> Good, clean, wholesome fun on this show. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I don't think we need to worry about it. Is that too likely? I, I don't know. When's the last time someone made a, a truck full of money in the tabletop game industry? Don't know. Uh, well, it's I, from what I understand, really, the if you're a rules book publisher and you're an indie publisher, uh, you know, like the sales, uh, if you sell 5,000 copies of your book, that's like, that is superhero. And uh, yeah. so, yeah. you know, it's not, you know, I don't think anybody in this industry should be expecting like some sort of massive high volume, you know, sales. Uh, and a lot of it is kind of, I think, sort of pure, you know, uh, I don't know, just pure competition kind of thing. Uh, we all, you know, are kind of watching each other and, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Um, but I don't, I don't think that big money is is in the cards for the role playing game industry the way it's currently set up now. I just, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so either. However, I do think that role-playing games in the future are going to become uh, a much bigger deal in the world of entertainment. And uh, so my, my feeling is that what's going to happen is we're going to start getting better and better at games mastering tools, and those tools are going to eventually allow us to expand our audiences and our player bases and people are going to professionalize on games mastering and it's going to become a form of entertainment that will extend beyond you know the the local table i think once that happens then role-playing games are going to become the premier form of entertainment and people will just be like why would i want to watch a movie when i could be <laughs> the superhero in the movie <clears throat> oh yeah yeah i, think... I would like i would like to believe that but I think the I think the IQ barrier to be able to enjoy a, a role playing game is too high. Like, uh, I think it's really <sighs> tough to be to be a good role playing gamer if you're not sort of at least you know a standard deviation or two above the norm. So I I think I could see it being a pastime within a certain segment, you know. But um, well, I, I don't know. I can't be replacing the people that watch re, you know Housewives of Las Vegas or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to disagree. I mean, I believe that you can make a role-playing game that will appeal to a little bit of everyone. If you want to have a, a role-playing game like like yours with uh, um, with more than basic mathematics involved, then that's going to appeal to the um, the better educated, more math-heavy people. If you want to have it based on simple addition, you can do on one hand, which I've seen done. Then that's going to appeal to people that that aren't really into that and you're going to drive away the eggheads <laughs> that, uh, that were uh, busy with the math degrees. Uh, I think it can be tailored to fit, but I don't believe we're going to have a one size fits all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I think, uh, cause one of the things that I'm experiencing right now at the conventions that, that I've seen is when I talk to, um, the younger, I say younger, I mean, I mean, the generation of gamers that came after those of us that played in the eighties and, and mm -hmm. earlier, or the, um, the generations that, uh, I I'm seeing are coming and saying, what is this? You know, what, what is this role-playing game? I want to, I saw Dungeons and Dragons. I want to try this, but I don't know what this is. Um, and it's because their experience with the role-playing game was they played The Witcher or they played mm -hmm. Final Fantasy, mm -hmm. and that's what they considered to be an RPG. And what's interesting about it 
is that those uh, types of, of gaming and then to um, Mark's point too, you know, to watch a movie, it's still a very passive way of receiving a story, right? You're basically being told the story most of the time. Um, you get a little bit more interaction in the video game, but the thing about that is, is that the video game sparked their imagination. And then when you tell them, okay, so in the tabletop RPG, you can sit down and instead of, you know, you're, you're the, the witcher and you've got three choices, you know, this, this, or this, you can just decide, no, I'd like to do something else. I'm sitting at the bar. I'd like to carve my initials into the bar. You can't yeah. do that in a program. And that captures their imagination. And now they're a part of the story. They're engaged. And you can, um, and, and to, to your point as well, Alexander, I, I know what you mean about that, that you need a certain uh, sort of deviation. I think that, that there are, that, that you do need a little bit of that, but there are a lot of people out there that are just, they're dying to, to get into that. Um, the, I think right now though, the only introduction that they know is what they've seen on like, you know, critical role and stuff like that. They, they see, okay, well, D and D five E is the only thing. And that's not true. Well, to speak to that, I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, he was telling me that <clears throat> he would get the game ready and he would bring it out to conventions or game shops and sit down. And these people would come in who had just played The Witcher or they had done something else or they'd seen Critical Role. And they thought, hey, let's play this. And they wanted the story laid out for them, just as you said. And here, give me my choices. And when he explained that it was open world, uh, he he could tell that he was losing people. At the table, mm -hmm. and after it was after it was over, they uh, they left, and one of them told them, "Well, that's just not the way we play. You know, we <laughs> played before. We just don't. That's not how we do it." And I know it sounds funny, but I thought about it for a second, and I realized <clears throat> what he did was he offered them a role playing game. Sure, he did, but they came into it with the wrong expectations, and that's not their fault. I don't believe it's their fault. It would be like if I said, hey, let's play a game of baseball. And you thought, okay, let's play baseball because words mean things and I've put an idea in your head, right? Well, now when we show up to play baseball, I show up in a diving suit and a weed eater and I say, hey, Archon, let's play some baseball. And you're going to be like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> it's, and you're going to be turned off real quick and I don't blame you. Um, so maybe we need to do a better job at communicating exactly what our game's about and set up expectations for this, for a new audience, if we can. Now I'm also a fan of the throw them to the wolves and see what happens. <laughs> this a school of thought, but uh, if we want to have better engagement with our players, perhaps a little bit of outreach would not be a bad idea. Uh, I think there's also another piece to this, which is how the games master goes about onboarding the players during the initial phase of the game. So yeah. I, I just actually started a new campaign, uh, a science fiction campaign. And um, I had a couple of players who I'd been playing with for a while. And I had two new players who really had no experience with RPGs at all. And, uh, so my task was to get them on board and up and running as, you know, sort of smoothly and quickly as possible. And uh, I think that the way that I approached it really helped. 
uh, in this sense. So what I did was, first off, I started them in a very ordinary situation, um, in a very unordinary version of our world, but in a very ordinary situation, they were due to take a transport to Kitt Peak uh, Observatory in uh, Arizona. And so this the game started out in a coffee shop waiting for the um, transport station to open. And that gave them a chance to kind of look around and you know, sort of get a feel for, well, what kind of things can we do? And as they were in the coffee shop, I was kind of peppering them with side conversations from other, you know, other non-player characters who were talking about things about the world that allowed them to understand the nature of the world. I talked about the weather. I talked about what the world looked like. And very quickly, they were, you know, very much like they were very comfortable with what they were doing. They, and just seeing a couple of other players, you know, my kind of veteran players just interact with the environment. They knew right away, okay, this is how this works. And uh, the the show not tell thing, right? Exactly. Show not tell. I do that. I absolutely do that. I do not explain technically what's about to happen, what kind of game this is. And there are certain points where, okay, they were a little disoriented because, you know, they didn't know what to expect, but that's on me as the games master. I need to be able to introduce them to the world in a way that allows them to really grasp what is the nature of this world and what is it like. And that's totally on me to do that. But once once it's done, then now, you know, like we're only a couple of games in and they're already uh, not only completely conversant with how to play, but one of my players, when we had a down game because another player couldn't uh, come, he volunteered to one shot a game with my system. And he played it. We played two sessions. He games mastered it. And he was an absolute pro. It was, it was, he was a champ. He did all the prep. He had this whole storyline. And so, you know, I think that what it is is that you really have to, as games master, flow people into the game smoothly. And if you can do that, then you yeah. have players and they can get up and running right away. Well, not immediately, but like smoothly, let's just put it that way. At least yeah. that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, I, I think a big issue is that there aren't that many game masters and the amount of work required to be a game master is off-putting for people, particularly yeah, in, our, in our ADD culture. Yeah, um, yeah there's definitely it's easy to an up. effort involved with games mastering no doubt about it but this is this goes back to early comment that i was making i think that in the future and i'm going on the record here i want to be the Mm -hmm. guy who said this and people (laughs) said no but (laughs) i believe okay i believe there are going to be extremely cool games mastering tools that will allow us to create worlds that will allow us to manage characters that will allow us to you know run our games really really smoothly and no (laughs) well you heard it here first (laughs) and uh, not only that but i i think that people are going to use those tools games masters are going to use those tools to run games and what i mean by expanding the audience is i think what's going to happen is sort of in the direction of what critical role is doing people yeah you're absolutely right not everybody can play role-playing games well 
some people can play them tremendously well and some people can games master them tremendously well. And those groups of excellent games masters and excellent players are going to become the core of, you know, basically shows that are being played live where the games master is running his world. The players are there, you know, having characters that are living and dying and achieving and dying and whatever. And people are going to be watching this. There's going to be audiences, and I think that's really where the money is going to be, and I think that's how professional games mastering is going to really take off. And there will be, like, troops. We'll have, like, uh, role-playing troops. You know, games masters are really good with players who are really good. And, uh, you know, and I think that's how, to me, that that's my sort of vision of the future for role-playing games. I think it's going to be come all the more popular it's going to become a really really big thing in the next you know x number of years well i hope you're right i do right now i believe we have some we have a kind of problem where if if you could even call this a problem we have a lot more players than we do people who are willing to run a game and if you think about the number of players that we have that are actually what we would call good players did you hear the finger quotes around the word good there? <laughs> they have the good players. How, what percentage of them want to step up and actually be a game master? If you have one bad player or heck five bad players at your table, you can still run a game that is generally enjoyed by everybody. So long as there's, you know, pizza and Mountain Dew. But if you <laughs> only have, if you only have one game master and he sucks, then nobody's going to have a good game. And you notice yeah. the bad game masters more than you notice the bad players. So um, what what to do there? How do you teach somebody to be a good game master? It's it, it, yeah. it just, it's experience. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things that, that we can talk about in these shows. Um, and we have talked about. But, I, man, I probably spent decades being a everything from a mediocre to a really bad game master. Um, mediocre through really bad. Wow. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> I've done, I, I've done, I've made some horrible mistakes as a game oh, yeah. master. Um, and uh, so I try to share those mistakes um, and tell other people, Hey, look out for this. If you start doing this. Um, but it, it just, it's something that people have to step up and do and the players and the game master have to work together. One of the things that I tell new players when they don't understand, you know, the freedom that they have in the, in the game as a character. is I'll say, you know, basically, yeah, we can, we can keep this kind of, you know, to the, to a script if you want. But um, if you say that you think your character might like to do this and you want to explore it, well, bring it up. We'll talk about it and we'll figure out what that looks like. And we'll see, you know, is this a possibility? You know, um, so it's a collaborative <clears throat> thing there. And and some of that is just the confidence of having been there. But yeah, man, it, it takes a long time to become a good GM. Harold just said a good GM is made through years of sucking at it. And to say that another way, failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of success. If I had a nickel for every game that I have ever ran or had any part in trying to help run that went off the rails and just kind of exploded on the drawing board. <laughs> I wouldn't need to sell my game. I would be happy. <laughs> I'd be happy yeah. doing something else, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm a good GM now, but I know that I'm better than the guy that used to GM that looks like me five years ago. 
I've you learned still so look much. like how you did look five years ago, man. Gosh, I look like shit compared to how I looked five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, diet, exercise, and drugs. That's what now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Drugs. Cocaine is my secret. Um, I, uh, so I actually wrote a book on how to be a game master. It's on Amazon. It's called Arbiter of Worlds. It's, it's done pretty well for me. I made more money from that book than I made from all of Autark last year, which I thought was kind wow. of hilarious. Um, so I think there is a market for people who really want to have it figured out. Like, what do I do? Cause it's really hard, right? Like you have to be, uh, you know, emotionally intelligent and sort of cognitively intelligent and socially astute and you have to be willing to bully your friends which is a really key part um no I'm, I'm i'm not joking right like i feel like to make a campaign work you have to be like the sort of guy who could organize a little league baseball team and make the kids show up because there's always some reason that steve's wife is upset at him and yep. she's going to make him feel guilty if he comes and plays and you know bob has to get up early in the morning and if you can't make them feel shittier about not coming to the game you're not gonna have a campaign so, uh, the hope that is that is the game true. is so good <laughs> that, yeah that they're there's showing no, up there's, to... <laughs> there's no such there's no such game as, as that as, as, well as, as, I... you, you have to be you have to be able to counter the wife nagging by the time you're 45 or your campaign is over I'm telling well, you, you have to... so my wife plays so i've got that down oh there you go <laughs> Well, I think if you that's want to like make cheating on the Kobayashi Maru, brother. Like, I mean, <laughs> uh, are are you comparing me to Captain Kirk now? Because sure, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, not everyone can be Captain Kirk, and not everybody could get a wife who actually plays. I mean, that's right. You know, that is hard. <clears throat> I find that things go much smoother if my wife does not play, because that's something that we're not doing together, and this is my little private thing, and she can do her private thing. And if you do have a wife that will play or a girlfriend that will play, that is amazing, and my hat's off to you, until it comes down to the situation where you have got to grease her character for doing something stupid. And then you sleep on the couch. So yeah, I we... actually have a, I have a funny story. <laughs> I have a funny story in that regard. So I, uh, I was, I've run the same gaming group for like 15 years. And at one point, one of the players was my girlfriend. And she and I uh, had a rough breakup, but she stayed in the gaming group. And um, she ended up marrying another player from the gaming group. And then, you know, they got married. They had kids. And now they're getting a divorce. And so she calls me and she's like, you know, really upset. And she says, I'm getting a divorce. And I just, I want you to know the gaming group's really important to me. And I hope that you won't, you know, kick me out of the group um, now that I'm, I'm splitting from, from, uh, from Mike. I told her, I said, listen, if I didn't kick you out of the gaming group when you dumped me, why would I kick you out of the gaming group when someone else dumps you? So exactly. She said, was, she said I was an asshole and that was good. If I yeah, that's another one of those things. If I had a nickel, but I no longer deny it. It's been said so many times. It's probably true. Probably true. I'm telling you, it's, it's the key. Nice, nice guys, nice guys don't run long-term campaigns. Yeah, well, you do have to understand that you're taking the the the, the reins of penultimate power here. You have heard that uh, that advice that says don't fight with your players. Don't do that. Well, you can't. As a GM, you cannot fight with your players because you have all of the power their characters have, what power you give them, and any confrontation between the GM and a character is not anything that a reasonable individual could call a fight. It is just over. Yeah, you just like step, it's done, and there's there's no more. So you don't fight with them. 
I've had the most success by letting their characters get away with crap. Just let them get away with it. Let them get away with the most ridiculous things that they can come up with. And then when the moment comes that they really step in it and they decide they're going to go up to that dragon and while it's sleeping and kick it right in its tender bits, what happens next is a surprise to no one. <laughs> and there's not a bit of bitching. There's not any, oh, hey, that was unfair. What happened to me? They just look at me and go, yeah, I had that coming. So I can roll a new character now, right? Yeah, go ahead. And then they go do that and we're right back at the game. <laughs> um, hey, you know, uh, so datum keeps saying about paid gms um and i we actually know someone who's a who's a paid gm and i think it's cool but my big worry for paid gms is i i worry it might not be conducive to the osr play style with high mortality right like i could really see players getting really upset if they're paying you money and then you kill their character um and i, I just wanted to know if anyone has any thoughts on that well i think that's an interesting point uh i've also uh run professional games. Uh, and uh, I did actually, I had an incident with a player who uh, their character died. And, uh, you know, um, and it was very much at the end of the game. And he was, uh, you know, we'd been playing for about 12 sessions and it was the last session. And he did something foolish and heroic and he died. And he cried. He cried and he cried and he cried unconsolably for at least 20 minutes. And, um, you know, but the, the kid, you know, this was for kids. So he was about 11 years old, I guess. Okay. And, uh, you know, the other kids were, uh, 11 too. And, um, so, uh, but the question of, well, you know, how are people going to react if they're paying for the game and what they expect? And again, I think this really comes down to the games master setting boundaries and, uh, you know, making it very clear that, you know, like if it's me and I'm playing with adults and I'm doing a professional game, then I make it pretty clear right away that, um, you know, uh, you have to play smart in this world. If you don't play smart, then your character is going to get killed. And so play smart and you improve your chances of success. There's no guarantee, but you improve your chances. And my feeling about it is that players, when they're confronted with that, take the challenge. And if you if you frame it correctly, then they have no problem with it because they understand what the rules of the road are and they know that they can get themselves killed. And so they try very hard not to. And sometimes, you know, they're unlucky or whatever. They get killed. And, you know, uh, if you framed it correctly, then I don't think you usually will have a problem. Now, I've never ran a professional game in my life. <clears throat> I have ran a bunch of unprofessional games. My God, have I ran unprofessional <laughs> But um, the players that I normally interact with, uh, my game was designed for ages 18 and up. Uh, most products are ages 10 and up, and I'm, I just find that to be a little bit too limiting in the kinds of stories that I want to tell and the, um, and the material I want to get through. And I have more fun playing with the you know, old enough to buy beer crowd. But <clears throat> whenever it comes down to uh, having a character die, my the players at my table will probably tell you their favorite time their characters died. Uh, Datum sitting here saying that he absolutely loved the, uh, <laughs> the games that he's played with me. Um, and when I say characters die, I mean, yeah, I don't think 
we're going to be able to fix that without a whole lot of money and a couple of wishes and maybe some divine intervention because this guy's gone. Uh, <laughs> what do you do when your character gets eaten by a troll? And I mean, that was just it. He got eaten <laughs> and he ran off. Uh, you are a pile of used food on the plane somewhere. They're never going to find you. Um, but I do find that they're even more engaged because the stakes are so high. And they are, I find that they're really paying attention to what goes on. I agree with you on all of that, but I also think there's a large segment of players who would disagree with both of us. Like, I run oh, yeah. very high, I run really high mortality old school games. Um, and I would say the number one reason that people have dropped out of the campaigns I've run has been when one of their characters gets killed and they just are upset about it, or they just say, your campaign is too deadly, and I don't want to be stressed out about dying when I'm doing my fantasy adventuring. Uh, and I, I see that a lot more in the younger players than in the older players. Like the Gronyards of 35 to 45 think nothing of it at all, but you know, your 21 to 23-year-old sort of gamers have a very different attitude in, in my experience. Well, I, um, I can see that. So. I can. I was yeah. playing in a, a a game a campaign here recently that was sort of labeled as OSR, um, hosted by or DM by somebody actually here on the tavern. Uh, won't name names, uh, <laughs> but it was it was very deadly the first time we played in the campaign, and it was like I was losing a character like every weekend, um, and. That one, it felt a little bit like much because we would get into, it was like if we got into an encounter, I was pretty much going to die. Um, mm. And that felt a little, and, and what's interesting is that's not how it felt to me back when I used to play the old D&D &D basic, because I, I had the red box basic and expert, and I also had advanced. Mostly, like when I was in high school, we mostly played the old advanced uh hardbacks you know with the old uh you know the the big um statue on the cover and then the dmg with the mm -hmm. free monster on it yeah um and so we were playing those rules and i remember uh maybe every other weekend you know if playing every weekend somebody's character would die but it was not like you know you expected to die every time you played it was like there was usually you know within every two or three games somebody some some character might have died but yeah right 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 i don't know i mean i don't know what the frequency is you know i don't know how to measure experience and i'm also kind of i it, it does kind of bring me around to the the idea and i wonder um within the osr community how many people are actually playing the original rules like the in in and I not I shouldn't say the original because there's several original rules, but how many people are actually playing unadulterated, like um, uh, you know, like the the first uh Moldvay classic or the just the straight up advanced D and D books or something like that. Uh, we had a friend uh who was games mastering a very strict edition one Gygaxian game for quite a number of years. And it was definitely the deadliest game. Uh, we didn't expect to survive any given adventure. Uh, when you took <laughs> into account uh, wandering monster roles and you took into account, uh, you know, just all the factors involved, you go into a dungeon and he had, you know, 
he had these kind of crazy design dungeons as well. You know, it was like angled cornered rooms and all this, you know, you know, jagged stairways and all this stuff and lots of traps. And uh, it was, but I think that's the nature of the original style of play. And the Gygaxian rules really embody that because I don't think in those days people expected to have long-term characters that didn't come out uh, for a while. And people started saying, hey, I want to keep playing this character. He's got a little bit of history. I don't want him to die every, you know, every session. And so things started to, you know, get more story oriented uh, along the way. But I think originally it was very much of a, you know, go in and get killed kind of game. Mm. Yeah, which was a lot of fun, uh, I should probably add. Well, we did have henchmen, and I remember that getting used a lot. You'd get hirelings, and you'd get some chaotic character, and he would just use the hirelings to go and set off all the traps for him. <laughs> Which yep. again, yep. yeah, it, but but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't lend itself, you know, when you're playing just pure mechanics. Um, I think the story aspect of that, it, it it's a little. It feels a little thin because at what point do the hirelings go, man, forget this guy. I'm the next on the list. <laughs> Wasn't there a hireling um, uh, morale check? I think I remember. It there was. There yeah. Was. Yep. You know, so, yep. you know, <laughs> you can't push them too far. Yeah. And, and that comes down to a mechanic. And I think that's one of the differences between um, more recent philosophy of of game design um and and maybe the old because i i felt like a lot of things were rulified and codified back then uh because you're coming from this idea of like um it, it's very much a combat resolution and almost a war game right i don't know maybe maybe that's my perspective and and now today we live in the age where um, we have games like Savage Worlds, and we have games like Fate, where um, the the storytelling is so important that we even take some of the aspect of the storytelling away from the game master and give it to the players in terms of the world setting. Yeah, that's that's another topic that I find very interesting, which is this whole question of player agency and how far to take it and what the ramifications of it are and uh, the pros and cons involved with, uh, you know, kind of seeding player agency in terms of world creation uh, during the course of the game. Uh, I personally, I, for me as a player, I kind of prefer not because I like to be immersed in a world and I like to have the feeling like it is there, it exists. And I get that the most with games masters who know their world. And uh, so for me, it becomes more of an exploration game. And uh, I don't mind seeding the creativity of world building because I feel like I've got that creativity in how I play my character. And uh, so for me, that's that's my side of it. But um, I know that you know people enjoy... Uh, you know, all aspects of this. And I'm always curious to hear what people think about, you know, kind of like all sides of this question. Well, I'm one of those people that believes in letting players do 
whatever they can imagine right up until the point that they start interfering with somebody else's fun. And when they start doing that, when they start becoming that guy at the table, then, well, hey, the next time you come back, could you, you know, not come back? <laughs> yeah, I so, hear it. Do, so do you handle that as, uh, you know, kind of like in-game, you know, like through the through the story, or do you just tell them after the game, hey, don't come back? Well, it's, it's situational. Um, nobody, I mean, you really have to do something awful for me to tell you to get up and leave. And nobody's ever done it. I mean, I think you would have to physically get up and strike me before I would, um, you would be egressed from the studio. Um, but as far as having somebody be so rowdy and disruptive that they can't, uh, they can't, well, that they're making the game unpleasant for others. That has happened, and I won't name names, but that was a quick conversation with the guy's parents. And I was I asked, did this, is he on medication that he's not taking or that he's telling you he's taking and he's not? And like magic, he just never showed up again. And I, he's welcome, but that attitude has to go. I had a similar situation. Uh, I had a kid who was, you know, in that same group and he was very belligerent uh, when he showed up. He was very sarcastic, sardonic, dark kid. And uh, yeah. after about, oh, I'd say like six or seven games, I had it up to here with him and I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're not welcome here anymore. Uh, you have to go. And his mother wrote to me and said, please, please don't kick him out of the game. He's really sorry. And I wrote her back and I said, okay, if he can change his behavior, then I'll give him another chance. But if I see that, you know, kind of uh, attitude again, then uh, he's going to be out because he's like a square peg in a round hole. And yeah. he came back and I have to say, he really actually did completely change his behavior. And he became a good participant in the game after that. And I think it just took that slap for him to realize, oh, you know, there are consequences to my behavior. And he realized he could change it. And he did. And it all worked out great. I'm so. glad to hear that the story had a happy ending. And because Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> yeah, Mine was, didn't have a happy cool. ending. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. That happens. That happens. You can't always, you know, but uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes, you know, whatever. I let my players try to take care of this first because I like to stay out of it until I know I can. And I remember the day that the guy at the end of the table is sitting next to this, the, the problem child here. And he's having, he's one of those guys that's always five minutes behind. He's asking questions, raising his hand about wanting to know about something that happened 20 minutes ago. And he would say, you're, uh, I describe a scene where there is this fountain that you want to examine. And he's over here looting bodies because that's what he said he wanted to do. The minute you start examining the fountain and I am start describing something cool about it, all of a sudden he pipes up out of turn. And now he wants to grab this cool thing in the fountain, even though he's simultaneously otherwise occupied, you know. And this happened for about two or three hours. And my friend... And a guy I went to college with leans over to him and said, you know, if you keep talking over us, you're going to, Alan is going to get up and he's going to pick you up out of that chair and he's going to throw you through that door. 
And then he's going to open the door and come after you. And that was the most hilarious thing that I had heard. Horrific Tom and Jerry cartoon-like violence came out of this guy. And you have to understand who it was that said this. He was an engineer. Okay. <laughs> That's what this guy does. He was just a nerdy little engineer. And he throws this out. So this kid was really making people mad. And that still didn't stop him. So, again, the uh, the quick talk with the parents, that I, I thought it was very respectful about the whole thing, but that seemed to, well, he just never came back. And I guess that solved the problem after all, you know? I love the dead silence that follows that story. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the behavior problems are it definitely challenging. And it's interesting because it usually does end up falling back to the the game master somehow to correct them um i mean it seems like you always get that player that may says something about well this is what my character would do or makes an excuse like that but mm. it socially just doesn't you know um it, you're you're it's like when people cross that line and and other people don't um i don't know you know it's just hard to describe we've we've had our share um of people that that you know, where that happened and sometimes, and we have, we have had to eject people from our games, you know, at home because of that. It's well, I mean, really you're dealing with the, yeah, you're dealing with the public here yeah, and it's a small subsection of the public, but you're going to have, it's not the ups and downs in life, your life hard, yeah. it's the jerks. And <laughs> you're going to have a section of these people that are just plain, they're maladaptive. That's the nice word to say. They're maladaptive. And you not everybody is going to be a winner. You're going to have a few bad ones. And most of your players are probably terrific people. Please. I agree with all of that. <laughs> I will say I do think I think it's important to sort of stress to the players at the start whether or not you're running a game that's intended to be completely cooperative or completely competitive or a mix. Like we've run mm -hmm. we've yeah. run Cyberpunk. It's a very competitive game. Like we did uh, this Chrome Berets campaign for our tell story in Cyberpunk, and it literally ended with half of the party gunning down the other party to flee a third world country with their ill-gotten gains, and then getting blown up in the helicopter by the bomb that the party that just got killed had planted earlier in the session. It's like everyone died, and they had all killed each other, and all my NPCs are like, "Well, that was weird." Um, that but everybody had everybody had fun because. Are you sure uh, it wasn't paranoia? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or versus another spy. example, right? Yeah, spy versus spy. Um, but, you know, if that happened in one of my Axe campaigns, I think my players would go crazy at each other for the betrayal because there's just this expectation of good behavior in Axe that there isn't in Cyberpunk. So, um, how, how did like, you... I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask you, how did you handle the double cross situation? Because presumably you have players sitting at the table with one another. So how do you keep certain things? Um, I mean, presumably there's things that you had to keep secret from like part oh, of the table. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had, there was note passing, emails and text messages, um, uh, you know, people leaving the room and having private conversations. I mean, the paranoia okay. level was absolutely ludicrous in the campaign. And when it was all over, they found out that the Netrunner had secretly hacked everyone's bank accounts and they'd been extracting cash. And all along, <laughs> I had been giving everyone 10% less money every time I gave money out, but no one ever checked their bank tallies because they just trusted me as the GM. 
Wow. And, um, That's awesome. And so they found out like she'd been ripping them off for 20 sessions. It was just, I mean, it was just out of control. But everybody stayed good friends about it because it was understood that that was the, the campaign we were playing. Yeah. Well, how did you maintain that level of tension throughout all that to, <clears throat> to, to keep the intrigue going? And not go crazy and just crack under the pressure of all this that's weighing down. I, I, I imagine it was just all weighing on you while you were doing this. And you can't say anything to anybody, so you've got to, it mums the word. Um, yes. Um, so, I, the way I handled it was I would always just try and put myself into the shoes of the NPCs I was controlling, try and think about what they knew, and then do things I thought were sort of logical and made sense. And then I could do even the most trivial things with those NPCs, and then they would just spiral into conspiracy theories, and, you know, four hours of gameplay would pass with absolute madness, and, you know, all I had been done, all had to happen would be, like, someone called them. I don't know. It was a very strange campaign. So I've, I've, never, I've never quite run one like that, where really everyone was playing sociopathic, paranoid, nut jobs. <laughs> That's actually a, a common theme in cyberpunk fiction, though, right? Is that oh, yeah, yeah. there's a level of paranoia. And so the, the interesting thing about conspiracies and things like that is you don't know. And so you make, uh, you know, the, the, the main central characters see things and then they connect dots that aren't there. And then there's other dots to be connected that they don't see or don't pay mm -hmm. attention to and don't latch onto them. And they just spiral out and assume oh my gosh, this goes to the highest level. The yeah, FBI yeah, exactly. You know, and it's really just some guy who's a clerk in a, you know, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah, this group started to get really paranoid against each other. So, like, the techie, when he installed everyone's smart gun equipment, put a cookie cutter system in so that he couldn't be shot. So smart. Then, like, late, you know, so later when there was betrayal and they went to assassinate the, the techie, uh, you know, the gun couldn't fire at him, and so then he had to get butchered with wolvers in melee. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it was That's dark, great. man. Anyway, all I'm saying is you can have fun with sort of maladaptive behavior if everyone has agreed you're going to be maladaptive. Right, right. That's right. the key, right? Right. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the key to any table, right, is you set that, just like you guys were talking about with death, you know, that people yeah. need to know. Because yeah, if they sure. come in and you just walk into a game, I mean, I had a game that I walked into that I thought was going to be cyberpunk, and the next thing I know, this guy's got me chasing fairies, and I was like, "What? Wait, 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 wait! What? There's fairies in this world playing cyberpunk 2020," and oh, I was weird. so confused. Yeah, I was so confused, and it just put me off. And I said, "Yeah, I'm not playing," because um, if mm -hmm. I'd wanted to play a game on that setting, I would have chosen to play a fantasy game. But yeah, it's or that thing. Or yeah. right. Absolutely. Totally, totally with you. Yeah, totally with you. Right back to the What's that Star Wars line? Subverting expectations? Yeah. You just don't, yeah. don't do that. You, uh, don't even do that. if you're going to throw up with something creative and new like that, the way to pitch it is to explain that, hey, this is a deviation or yep. something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly agree. Um. So here's an interesting thing. Do would you have you guys found you learn really interesting things about your players over years of running games for them? Like 
I, I, I've got to say, like, over 20 years of, of being a GM, like, I really know which of my friends I want in the trenches with me when the zombie apocalypse happens, and which ones <laughs> I'm going to be like, yeah, Bob, we're rendezvousing at Kroger's at 3 and driving to the Walmart, man. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bob, I want to live. I'm going yeah. to go somewhere. <laughs> but I we, choose we life. All, we, we all learn these things, right? We we did one game where everyone played themselves as, uh, during a zombie apocalypse, and um, and you know, and then we had my one friend Newton, who's like a military vet and a patriot and a really good guy, and his character got infected. He was like, "Everyone, I've been infected, so I'm gonna go form a barricade wall and fend off the zombies, so you can all escape." And then like the girl who was our marketing manager got infected, and she kept it secret and like you know escaped in the <laughs> chopper with everyone to the safe zone, nice. and then. They were like, oh, no. Nice. <laughs> He's just like, don't take the marketing manager to you to the <laughs> <laughs> well, Sometimes people do play themselves in those positions too, right? And, and it well, that gets was the really... gimmick. We were playing yeah. ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And well, it I gets that... really hard to play. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I think that every character that <clears throat> comes to the table is some facet of the person playing it. Sometimes it's a carbon copy. Sometimes yeah. it's a little bitty piece they never want people to see. But I think that's that's got to be in there for you to play it. Well. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, it, that's where I think it gets really challenging is when you get um, a character that is beyond um, your own comprehension. And, and, and what I mean by that is that we... We, I, I mean, we don't bat an eye when somebody picks up um, and, and rolls, says, oh, you know, this is, I, I've rolled an 18 uh, or 17, for, so I'm going to put it in my prime stat. And so I'm a, a, I'm a magic user, so I've got 17 or 18 intellect. Um, <clears throat> what does that mean? And, um, you know, when you got a guy over there that's, that says, you know, I've got 18 intellect, and you present him with a puzzle, and then he says, can I, can I roll for an idea? Um, it's it's a little underwhelming. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> playing a high IQ character when you are a <clears throat> when you have a room temperature IQ yourself is that's a challenge. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. <clears throat> I really don't know how to uh, how to make that up because with strength you can always say, oh yeah, sure, I have numbers I can put to this. With uh, with charisma, well, again, with charisma, you're screwed too. With dex, yeah, the physical ability, sure. With dex, you're going to be able to do that. I'm not really this ugly, but when it comes to mental attributes, I think we just need to maybe go ahead and let him roll for that idea because if he ain't got <laughs> it, he ain't got it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's challenging with the mental attributes to portray them. Um, what, you know, and at the table, even so far as, you know, if somebody is a genius, um, what are the chances that their social interactions are different? Um, most mm-hmm. folks that function high, yes. And can you, are, do you sound like the regular Joe Blow that I would just go have a beer with, right? Or, you know, whatever. Or do you sound like someone who socializes or interacts with people oddly? You know, are you like Sheldon Cooper mm. or something? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, again, I agree. It's... That is a, that's a, it's a real challenge for every game design, right? Because 
you're you're physically not the character, but mentally you're there. And so, how do you simulate mental skills? It's really tough. Well, then we have to ask the question. This is my my philosophy degree coming out. Um, why why should we worry about simulating mental abilities if they're not really important? I mean, if we're already going to use them for things that cannot happen, such as casting magic spells and summoning demons, is it really that important? Other than a, yeah, you're smart enough to realize that that is not, in fact, a bologna sandwich, but deadly poison. Uh, I think well, it comes you know, to... The, the way I handled it in Axe is that I, I basically treated the intelligence stat as the speed with which your character can learn information. And so you okay. get bonus, bonus proficiencies based on your intelligence bonus, and you get additional spells in your repertoire based on your intelligence bonus. And, yeah. um, and you can more quickly perform certain tasks like alchemy and um, magic item creation and things like that. And then, yeah. and then effectively, you're on the spot intelligence um, while you're sort of in a dungeon is up to you as the player. But if you have a character who's highly intelligent, your tool set of options you can bring is going to be larger because you'll have more proficiencies. So you might have... Um, you know, you might have, uh, you know, extra languages and the lore mastery proficiency to identify magic items, and you might have, um, you know, theology proficiency so that when I describe a weird symbol, you know, you're able to, I'm able to say, hey, make a theology check. Oh, okay, you recognize the symbol as this god, et cetera. Right, right. But, but it's never about, like, okay, well, you have a high int, so we're just going to solve this puzzle for you. And, you know, frankly, having known a lot of really intelligent people, I mean, I, I circulated with some super geniuses, and you can be a super genius and still be an absolute moron in the moment, right? Because intelligence mm -hmm. says, nothing, says nothing about how you're oh, going to do true. with situational awareness, stress, well, was... fatigue, you know? So, like, I think you could be 18, intelligence 18 and be an absolute moron in the dungeon, and it's perfectly realistic. Well, well there, was a, there was a joke going around campus when I was in college that what is the first thing you get whenever you earn a bachelor's degree? What you get is a deep and abiding contempt for everyone else with a bachelor's degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's true. Because all these people that you thought were smart because they had a piece of paper, and oh my God, they graduated you with my degree. Plus, and, <laughs> and now here you are with... Uh, you have extra letters after your name and not a lick more sense than you had when you went in. Man, it's so funny. I had the same thing happen to me when I got a law degree. Huh. My condolences. You're, you're right. <laughs> you're right. It, it really does. You know, like, you get the diploma and you get contempt. Huh. Well, it's like it's I've free learned, or something. I've learned something new tonight. <laughs> Hey, um, Mark, I saw it looked like you were going to say something earlier. I don't know if you're. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. So, <laughs> oh, man. I guess we'll have to let it go. <laughs> no, okay, uh, well... actually, no. Uh, what it is is that um, uh, I think that there is two stats involved with intelligence that you guys are talking about. One is intelligence itself and the other is wisdom. And, uh, you know, these two things are related to brain power, I guess, in a certain sort of way, 
but uh, they play out very differently. So, uh, you know, intelligence is your ability to calculate and memorize and learn. Your wisdom is your ability to apply your knowledge, should we say, wisely. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, the problem, the real problem, I think, uh, for RPG design is so you can have those stats, but you have a player, like you were saying, who, uh, let's say, has a very high stats in terms of their intelligence and wisdom, let's say, uh, and they're in situations where they're kind of called upon to be able to use that to make plans. And I see mm -hmm. that as kind of the sort of tripping point because I know some players who they glory in their plans and the rest of the players and I are like sort of gawking at them like, oh my God. <laughs> Do you really think that would work? And, yeah. and they're like, yes, absolutely. That, and I'm like, but, 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 you know, so, and I think that's where, you know, the kind of rough spot about this happens because, you know, he's supposed to be a very high intelligence character. And yet the plants that are coming out of his mouth are like, hmm, really make you wonder. So, uh, yeah. you know, there's that. It's a non quantifiable. Uh, with strength, if I say that I'm stronger than you, then if you dispute that, well, let's go over here and see who can pick up the most weight. Well, we can figure that out. The universe will absolutely have this was solved immediately. And there's no getting around it. But if I say that I'm smarter than you are, well, first of all, that's even rude to say, isn't it? You're not allowed to say that you're smarter than a person you're talking to. That's gauche. It may be true, but then you have to prove it. And how do you prove that to somebody when it, nobody thinks they have bad ideas. Right. And especially so, true with wisdom. Intelligence, you could take some tests and you could say, okay, you scored higher, blah, blah, blah. Wisdom, yeah. that's one that's really ethereal. How do, you, how do you know that one? I, you know, I think you're spot on on that. Wisdom is the real problem area. And I keep coming back to two concepts for wisdom uh, that sort of as to what, how I interpret it. But one of them, as I interpret wisdom as mindfulness or uh, uh, in the sense of um, sort of mindfulness towards your tasks, so willpower to get things done, which you can model, I think, in a game, you know, with like determination points or something. Mm. Um, and then I think mindfulness in the sense of situational awareness. And, uh, uh, you know, as an example, I get totally lost in my thoughts and then I'll look around my desk and have no idea where I put something down. Whereas my wife can walk past it 20 feet away, look at the table, and instantly spot that, like, a paperclip is out of position. And I could have stared at the table for an hour and never spotted that. And I think mm -hmm. you can model that in a game where you can give someone with a high wisdom, like, they're more perceptive, of, and, and so they get more detailed descriptions of things. Um, but I, what I think you can't model is sort of um, resourceful cunning, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. But when it comes to wisdom, I had a kind of solution. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, how practical this really is, but uh, this is this was my take on it. So I have a character, I have a player, and his character has, let's say, a high wisdom. And he asks a question, do I think that so-and-so is lying? And what I'll do is I'll roll against his wisdom. And if his wisdom is high then I will give him, you know, a higher percent chance of success on the roll. Uh, 
if his wisdom is low, then I will give him a 50-50 chance on the roll so that what happens is the player can't really game it because the mm. low wisdom character will never know did I, you know, how did I roll? They can't tell. So yeah, only the right. high wisdom characters will benefit from asking the question. And I've I tried that in a few games and it did actually seem to work pretty well. Um, so that was my kind of, you know, sort of attempted a solution to that. But yeah, it's a really hard problem from a design. I, I hit on something <clears throat> similar. What I do is if the character's wisdom is higher than the other guy's charisma then I let them know whether or not he's lying. But if his wisdom is lower than the other guy's charisma, then, then uh, I basically flip a coin for what he thinks. Wow. Well, I, I, I may be, I may be uh, totally uh, killing the thread here with this, but whenever someone asks me a question <clears throat> about do I think that this person is lying, I just hand it back to them and I say, you think what you think. Well, I have a high wisdom. Well, use it. You know, I'm, I don't want to let a stat ruin that, that story bit for me. And if they think he's lying for whatever reason, then they can believe it. And they may or may not be wrong. I might even See, ask them what their score is and roll it. And then it doesn't matter. What, and then still, whatever you think, you know. See, I, I disagree respectfully simply because I, I've okay. seen real life people who are so hyper observant that they really can look at a person and instantly know things that I cannot. And so I, I recognize that as a skill in the same way lifting things that I can't lift is, right, is okay. a skill or an attribute. And okay. so, like, I do think there are some people that really, you know, unless you're a very skilled liar, you can't lie to them. And if such a person has been created as a character in a game, I think that should be something you could, you, you could simulate. Okay. I, I think you can. But then we come around to the question of, do I think that they necessarily should? And is it fun to play that way? I don't know. That's going to vary. Your, your mileage may vary depending on um, what kind of game you want to run and how you want to do it. It's, I, I believe we're just coming down to my personal taste at this point. And oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And I just think that it's more fun. Anytime I have a game design decision or a game decision, I ask myself, what's the more fun way to do this? Would it be fun to just give them the answer? Or would it be fun for me to sit there and watch them sweat? <laughs> and not know mm -hmm. how this is going to go. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's really what do you feel like today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm notorious for not thinking about what's fun and what's thinking about what's realistic or plausible. So uh, I, totally, I totally hear you on that. Like, I know for a fact I probably sometimes do things in my own campaigns where I, I think it was the realistic outcome or the outcome that would have happened if this was real rather than the outcome that necessarily would be the most fun. So. Mm. Well, I try to, to if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the it actually happened this way side, but um, uh, I don't know. That's probably a lie. You know what? I don't know what I would do in any given situation. How do I feel? Roll the dice. Find out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dice are powerful, <laughs> man. I use the dice in real life all the time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't want to, but I'm going to have to cut you guys off here cut y'all a little bit short so that we can move into product promotion and then take any questions from folks after that. So I am so okay. cut. Okay. Sorry. I you know this is this is a great conversation and, and it's great fuel the next time. It's like fun or realism, you know. Um but I do need to sort of wrap up this segment because I think we're about 10 minutes past time for that. Okay. Um okay. so 
Uh, and I appreciate y'all. Uh, it looks like, um, let's see, Alan, I guess you had the lowest initiative. So I sure did. If you want to talk first and then sort of share your links with. Okay, well, let me get some of my uh, my links up here. Um, well, the links are going to be easy. Um, Thechroniclesofember.com, that's pretty much it. Um, uh, I am a guy who decided that I wanted to make a game that I wanted to play. And I came up with something called The Chronicles of Ember. I started way back in 1991 playing. Uh, my first game was uh, second edition to AD&D. And I just sort of moved forward with that through all the other iterations until we got to modern day and fourth didn't happen. And I managed to, <laughs> um, I managed to come up with something that I wanted to play first and foremost at my table. Um, it's a, it, it's set in a cold dying world with a selection of anthropomorphic characters and some regular humanoids. And the big thing that you're trying to do is not die. You do not want the, the weather to get you. There are little pockets of civilization still around in this world, and they're hanging on to any geothermal events or uh, areas that they can find or uh, hanging on to any resources that would keep them alive. And it's, it's brutal. <laughs> it's designed to be brutal. Uh, the weather is probably your worst enemy. There are some nasty monsters you can fight, but you do not want to be caught out in the cold overnight where the temperature can dip below 20 degrees below zero. You don't want to be in a fight and have somebody, if in a case of a, of a critical hit, instead of doing some multiple of damage to you, uh, well, in this you're going to have to carry your water right next to your skin to keep it from turning into a rock. Well, what if you're in this fight and that water gets punctured and now not only in this zero degree weather are you in combat, you're wet. Now you've got a whole different set of problems that you have to deal with. And letting the environment be that monster that you have to have to survive, that's fun. Um, also, the combat system, it has gotten rave reviews because it's managed to... Uh, now, ice punk is a good word for it. Um, um, the combat system actually works without rounds. Um, there's none of this, I go and then you go and you know, I can't hit you. You haven't tried to hit me. Um, there is a um, yeah, Canada. Well, yeah, but like North Canada. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really harsh in that way. The magic system, uh, you can either be a cookbook mage where you have all of your spells, these formulas that you've solved the universe for to get effects, or you can go another route and make up your spells on the fly. And it's one of those things that if you're a, uh, if you're a veteran player, you're probably going to fall right into this. I have had some people look at all of the anthropomorphic characters and say, oh, I'm playing no game with furries. And I'm like, well, I haven't lost anything. You already weren't in my game. So <laughs> I don't have your money. I never did. And I, I guess that's the attitude I had to have about it. But we regularly have games about every week. And I have people beating down my door wanting to play. So I, I'm doing at least something, right? That's awesome. Oh, thank you. I, lo I love that you've solved combat without um, initiative. That's, that's got to be really innovative. Yeah, that's cool. I'll be glad to show it to you. <laughs> Uh, you said some links and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. If you've got links, post them here so we can check it out. All right. All right. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is 
open up the browser that everybody was insisting on messaging me on. And <laughs> we are going to had to close that to keep things down to a dull roar on my side, you know? And what I I probably missed it in that. What was the system called or what's the um it's called the Chronicles of Ember. Okay. And That's right. and it is a it, it's your standard D twenty system. Okay. As I understand the term, you know, you have all your funny dice and you roll your head on your D20 and then you have that you get. Um, you, if you've played any version of D&D, you know exactly how this goes. And I know it's not for everybody, but boy, it works out really well for me. Uh, <laughs> well, and it sounds like your combat is a little different, too. It It, it is. Um, it works by um, on the concept of a cooldown on your weapon or your, your ability or whatever it is that you're going to be speed that it, <clears throat> that you have to get through to get it done. So certain spells are going to be able to go off before others. A dagger is about the fastest weapon you're going to find. A great sword hits like a truck <laughs> if it gets right. there. Um, if you get a if you get three uh, rogues surrounding something, you can get a backstab attempt for that they don't have to not know you're there. It's just if you're flanked yeah, somebody's going to be able to do this to you. And three rogues with short swords are going to eat you up. The fight's over before it gets started. Combat lasts whole seconds put together. Uh, when things start, they get ugly really fast. And every combat is one of those things where I don't know if I really want to do this. Um, I have never been in a combat situation that I was happy about or confident in or wanted to keep going. <laughs> it was always bad. And any plan that... No no plan survived the first few seconds. So you do the best you can. And in a matter of... A fight that lasts 15 seconds is a long, long time. And you're tired. At least I always have been. Kind of reminds yeah. me of uh, Cyberpunk in that sort of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody who knows how to fight, if they're going to grab a hold of you, they're going to do a good job, yeah. and they're going to do it now. And, yeah, and now imagine monsters being able to do this. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Egad, here comes this thing over there. <clears throat> and you didn't see it coming. Well, that may be your Mickey Finn, buddy, but we'll see how this goes. And so far, my players have loved it. They have absolutely loved it. Cool. Awesome. And you know, you could. T I played the Chronicles of Ember, and I'm glad I did. And should you? <laughs> I need to work on my elevator pitch, but hey. <laughs> Don't we all, brother? Don't we oh, all? I know I do. Cool. Well, now I have the link. Neat. I'm going to check this out. Yeah. Now, my website has recently on undergone a calamity. <laughs> And <clears throat> yeah, it, it did look really nice and now it looks really nice. got my website guy telling me he'll get around to it. Um, but it is for sale on drive through RPG and you can get it as a PDF, as a black and white uh, physical copy and that's perfect bound paperback, or you can get the deluxe version. And I would recommend and that, that's all in color and it's hardback and all that stuff. And it apparently they make gold. Uh, they make, um, <clears throat> color ink out of solid gold baby and that's getting harder to find so they charge you an arm and a leg just to get that printed 
and you get the same information in the PDF as you get in the uh, either of the um, printed copies. <clears throat> it's really up to you, but I think I've got some really good ideas in there, and I probably have a couple of uh, ideas that could be better in there, but they seem to work out for us. Um, well, that's, I don't have a lot left. That's <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, check it out. Uh, it sounds neat. Uh, it sounds like you've got some innovative combat. I like the idea of, uh, uh, it's sort of a s survival, which is just really neat. Um, yeah. sounds, yeah, I, I, it's kind of funny cause we were talking about, you know, it sounds like Canada or ice punk or something. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 Now the campaign setting is not in that book. That is what you need okay. to make a character and how to play. Is it and any, anyone who is eight pages? Yes, sir. Wow. Wow. Anyone that's huge. Time on this. Yeah. You hey. spent some time on this. I God, don't you know what I've been. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I spent, uh, I spent all the time and I wrote and say, and anybody who's comfortable running a game will be able to grab this and just jump right in oh cool campaign setting has not been <clears throat> it doesn't tell you how to be a gm it doesn't tell you how to do any of these things it tells you how to make a character and how the game is played and in, again anybody who's played before it's intended for ages 18 and up you should be able to sit down and just lay out a story I don't have any campaign setting released yet because I'm in the process of trying to secure artwork and sure. I'm not really good with this whole Kickstarter thing because I just don't know what I'm doing. So I'm trying to figure all that out and put out a few fires here and there. Um, but I'm, I'm willing to, uh, to take advice um, at, at knife point, if necessary, I will take whatever hmm. advice you give me at knife point. And <laughs> stick point, baseball bat, Strongly worded letter, up to you, really. <laughs> I'll take it all. Well, I, I can't give any advice about a successful <laughs> Kickstarter yet. So uh, Okay. But we have some other folks that come onto this show frequently who have had some. So, um, man, well, uh, this looks really cool. Um, I think we probably want to move on and hear what Mark's got to say about um, his stuff. Okay, there's my link. Uh, I am working on uh, a, a website application that supports the Elthos RPG system with <laughs> um, world building and uh, character management tools. And uh, it's called the Mythos Machine. And uh, there's a link from uh, the website to the Mythos Did we lose you, Mark? Hello? Uh, oh, yeah. Hi. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, never mind. Okay. Just me being stupid. Okay. Nothing out of the ordinary. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, as I was talking to the empty mic here, um, so yeah, so Mythos Machine is basically an embodiment of the Elthos RPG rules. Uh, 
and uh, does all the mathematics that of the rules during character creation. It lets uh, your players um, log in and find you as a games master, pick one of your worlds and uh, generate characters according to however you've configured your world. So uh, for example, you could use a straight roll system, you could use a dice allocation system uh, and so on. There are a bunch of options. And uh, the world building um, side of it allows you to create your own weapons and armors and races and classes, um, spells and, and skills. And uh, it, when you create these things, you kind of add properties to them uh, based on whatever it is that you have in mind. And then the Mythos machine will handle all the math. So when uh, your character picks a sword, it will calculate what the correct attack level is so and so on uh, for all the items in the game. And it allows Games Masters to either make their worlds public or private. Um, if they're public and they've made things in that world public, then those things are tradable uh, through a world things trading post. So you can go browse other people's worlds and see what kind of cool stuff they have. And if you like it, you can import it into your world and then modify it or change it however you want. Um, and uh, so basically it's a utility to uh, foster creativity and sharing among games masters. And um, the Elthos RPG itself is a kind of traditionalist, lightweight rule system. Um, I created it back in 1978. It actually also uses a centralized uh, chart mechanic for conflict resolution. I call it the general resolution matrix. And uh, it works pretty much exactly the same way as you guys were talking about earlier, which is you have a skill level and a difficulty level and uh, you compare those and then uh, you know, roll against that. And if you roll that number or above, then you're successful uh, at what you're trying to do. And uh, it covers both combat and skills use. Like if you wanted to create the you know, ultra bunny basket and you had you know, basket weaving skill, you could use this to uh, do that resolution. Um, and uh, it has, uh, you know, um, the orientation of the rule system is really for games masters who want to create their own worlds. So there's no actual setting associated to the Althos RPG. It's just a rules framework to allow you to create uh, the things in your world. And then you're off to the races in terms of creating the setting and so on. And the Mythos machine is designed to allow you to create those settings online so you can share them with your friends. And that is my elevator pitch. <clears throat> Better than mine. Oh, I don't know about that, but thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, and it's been a long time coming. So this has been a great project for me. Um, I started in 1978 games mastering and creating this rule system. And then in 1994, I started uh, programming it. And now I'm still tooling around with it. So it's a very long-term, humongous uh, kind of effort. And there are other pieces to the project as well. Uh, I'm working on another game system that's called the Metagame, which is also called the God Game, where you actually sit around with other players and create a shared world. 
And that shared world uh, is then to be used by the games masters at the table for their own campaigns. And what it does is it allows you to create the mythology of that world through actual play between you and your fellow games masters creating the world. So it's got five ages and, you know, the dawn age and then the age of heroes and then the twilight age and, and so on. And you kind of use that to build the history of your world. And uh, that way you can have a kind of coherent backstory for your campaigns. And that's what that game is for. Mm. Uh, I also have a board game that uses the Elthos combat tactics uh, that's kind of in the works, although that's very much kind of like a back burner project while I try to sort of get everything else sort of slung together. Uh, so yeah, Elthos project is like a, you know, kind of like an array of, uh, sort of efforts that are central centralized on the Althos RPG. And that's my second elevator pitch. There you go. All right. I'm going to shut <laughs> hey, up. No now. fair. No <laughs> fair. He got two. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of my plan. Okay. And that's it for me. Thank you. Of course, if there are any questions, feel free. I'm here. I think that means you're up, Alexander. All right. Well, uh, Adventure Conquer King is my core product from Autark. Uh, it's the OSR retro clone that is specialized in simulating domain play so that as you level up, you go from adventurer to conqueror to king. And then my <laughs> new game is the one I mentioned earlier, which is Ascendant, uh, which we're going to kickstart in February. And it is a super powered role playing game with. Very fast play and uh, some pretty elegant math uh, powering it. So um, hopefully uh, folks will remember that and come check it out when it kickstarts. And all of my fantasy players will suddenly realize their true dream is to be a superhero player and switch over and not hate me for doing a superhero game instead of Axe. <laughs> Everyone should have a plan. All right. Well, that's my elevator pitch. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. Okay. Um, I was going to just take a minute to, to self-promote a little bit, but I'll try not to take too much of y'all's time since I'm hosting tonight. Um, my name's Brian I'm from Lost Relic Industries, and Lost Relic Industries sounds like a really huge company, right? But it's actually just me and my wife. And we got together and made a tabletop RPG called Swords and Shaman of Songard. Um, because we felt that the rules and the systems that we were using at the time uh, weren't uh, lending themselves to the style of play that we wanted. Um, and we wanted to create, uh, to feel like we could create character archetypes that fit our game world a little bit better, and that we could create a game world that allowed for that constant uh, sort of expansion and exploration. Um, it's So it's really in the sort of homebrew spirit. Um, I did say I wasn't going to take too much time. Um, it's basically about uh, the elevator pitches. Imagine someone took a giant asteroid and uh, filled with Cthulhu monsters and slammed it into Middle Earth, uh, sending the world into a dark age for thousands of years. Uh, the high elves are now like gone and all the elves are Stone Age guys living in caves and stuff. Um, so they're very hmm. primitive. Uh, the humans are now on the rise now. The uh, sun has returned to the world, and um, they're building Iron Age and Bronze Age, uh, early city-states, 
and sort of trying to carve their way out amongst a uh, backdrop of uh, prehistoric creatures and the occasional uh, slimy thing from outer space. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. Um, that's Swords and Shaman of Songar. And the idea was that we would create one core mechanic for resolution for everything, which is a D percent. And basically, you want a D percent and roll low. We do have dwarves. Um, the dwarves were, in fact, the first inhabitants of Songard. I think somebody asked about that. Um, and being the first inhabitants of Songard, they're actually very diverse. They live, uh, many of them live uh, uh, above ground. Uh, many of them kind of more like, I guess, you would think of like hill dwarves. Um, but they come in all um, all variety of um, sort of ethnicities and and things uh, because they're spread across this very diverse globe. Um, I could go in longer about that, but we're at about ten o'clock, and so I wanted to open it up so you guys could ask some of these other guests a lot of questions and stuff. So, uh, without further pause, I know that was my very fast elevator pitch. It was great. I'm ready to buy. Hey. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Let me drop my links in there, and then you guys can answer lots of questions and stuff. Um, okay, so I've unmuted everyone, I think. And if anybody would like to ask questions, or if you'd just like to type questions, um, if you don't have any questions, we'll talk here for a few more minutes. Freedom! <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh my God, so many things I want to say, but that's all right. So <laughs> I'll introduce myself real quick. My name's Datum. I've been um I've been a mostly third to fifth edition uh dungeon master for about twenty years. I've actually been a professional storyteller for two and a half years. Um but the business is over. Um uh, there were some problems with Adventures League and it basically chased most of the people that were playing competitively out. So my uh my main, uh, what I want to call it, uh, market was kind of destroyed. It's no big deal. Um, but what I want to say is that, and my question is, when are you guys going to make box sets for your products? Because <clears throat> it is important. And um, I feel like those are the on-ramps. I know I've talked to Alan about Basic Ember. Um, I feel like you could also maybe launch on a virtual tabletop instead of actually making a physical box set. Um, but I think a, you know, an actual physical box set is something that y'all need to strive for to get people on board. Um, you know, like with wide audience. Well, I, I can speak to that. Um, oh, go ahead. So, so, first off, the um, production cost of doing a small print run box is much much higher than the production cost of doing a small print run book. Um, so if you're a small press guy, um, it becomes a logistical nightmare to try and do a box set uh, and to make any money from it. And I, I speak from experience in that regard. Um, secondly, if you're small press, the amount of sales that you get from game stores is close to zero. Uh, I mean, like it's two orders of magnitude less than you get from Drive Through RPG, which is itself an order of magnitude less than you get from a good Kickstarter. And so um, you can end up investing a lot of time and energy into a box product 
um, that you simply can't sell. The game, comp the, the game stores are, are just not interested in, in carrying it unless you already have a big audience. And if you already have a big audience, you don't need a starter set kind of cycle. I wouldn't say that. I mean, well, I wouldn't, I'm not saying I'm not saying you don't need one, but like D and D certainly benefits from one. I guess I'm saying is you can't use a starter set to build an audience if you don't already have an audience or a reputation I, or a lot of I, money. I definitely disagree. Um, uh, I, I don't know anyone who's done that that has succeeded. Man. Well, I mean, but who are you selling to? Are you selling to people like us that like you know routinely make things? Or are you selling to people that want a want a game that they can play out of the box? If I want to sell to people who want a game that they can play out of the box, I'm not going to do an RPG. I'm going to do a board game. And the overhead costs of a board game are pretty high too, right? I mean, yeah, but you have a much bigger audience, right? You can do yeah. your Kickstarters are typically in order of magnitude bigger yeah. for a board game. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Peterson's doing board games now. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you talk, that the Call of Cthulhu creator himself, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, just a ton, there's a ton more money. I mean, Fantasy Flight is not doing RPGs anymore, right? They're just going to do board games. Um, Magic: The Gathering out out earns uh, D and D by something like fifty to one within Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, I understand collectibles to be <clears throat> like the top thing right now. If you want to make something that's going to have a wide audience. Get something with uh, a collectible base. Hey, for for someone like like me, um, I mean, I'm not even at the level. It's it's kind of funny because I'm hosting the show, but all the guests on here have a wider audience. <laughs> um, I, I'm not even at a level, you know, that when I sat down and ran the numbers, that there's any way I could realistically uh, consider Kickstartering. You know, um, so for me to try to gain popularity. Um, by going into a run, trying to make a, a cost run for printing multiple books, um, getting them in a box, and then doing the maybe the distribution of that um, isn't is just that's just money that I'm throwing away and that that I don't really have. And where it makes more sense for me, if I'm going to invest money at all into it, it and maybe I'm wrong, you know, but to me, where it makes more sense is to go ahead and spend that money on my artists. Um, who, when people see those things, that's when I get views and that's when I draw mm -hmm. people in to come and see the digital stuff. Um, we last year, I'm, I'm probably like, I'm exposing, you know, my business, whatever. Uh, and I'm not asking anybody else to do that. Uh, last year we put our beta, um, actually it was in December of, uh, 2018. So not quite last year we put our beta, um, online. Uh, the rule books, uh, just as good faith, like, hey, we wanted this out here. We want to get feedback from as many people as we could. So we published them up on DriveThru. And I think uh, at Pay What You Want, I, we've had, I haven't looked at the latest numbers um, for January, but we were a little over um, 200 individual downloads or, or purchases for each of the Game Master's book and the player's book. Um, that's over the course of a year. And that's at pay what you want for somebody that, you know, again, we're not known. And of course, we're not on the front page. You know, we're not running um, ad things. So for me, it makes more sense to invest in the art, get people to see it. And now I'm looking at, you know, can we write a quick start guide that's a PDF that's easy to distribute for free? 
um, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily say, here's how to make a character. Because one of the, the thing is, is once people are ready to make a character, it's a, it, now they're investing, right? But if I say, here's a character and here's my easy, you know, this is like the easy game mechanic and here's a cool adventure. Um, the people can just sit down and within 30 minutes they can start playing. Um, mm-hmm. For me, that's a better way to start people. Yep, yep. I agree with everything you said. Yeah, and that, well, and that's really what I'm going for. I mean, it's like, you know, physical box set, I know, you know, you kind of have to, you know, gotta at least have, I don't know, what is it, what's even a short run, like 100? You know, I mean, it's, it's still a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, I get that, but it's like, I mean, I don't know, like even personally, like if you're, if you're, uh, you know, you got a few friends, make a, make a freaking box set, you know, in your, in your studio or wherever you're putting this stuff together and like make a prototype. Well, making a box set for me. <clears throat> wow. There was a twang in that statement, wasn't there? Uh, for me, making a box set would require that I have more than one thing to put in the box. And that would be uh, that'd be what I'm working on right well, now. I know. And I know where you're at. I mean, I, but I also know what what you haven't published. So um, I, 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 we got an NDA. No. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> no, I know. I know that there's more stuff other than just you know the the book that you have out that uh, you actually have that you can you know that that well. I mean, yeah, you need to. I mean, for yours, I, you have. The stuff for playing and and you know actually rolling dice with the game and as long as all your all your characters were uh npc or what i want to say like actual player races mm. um but you're you know you're working on the monster stuff i know you have it though you gotta have it you you, you know you you run monsters in the game that we played so yeah it's just that you know getting that into a product that's going to take a little bit of time and that's fine but it's like I know that you have also showed me the basic system for your system, and I think it's still great. Like, I think your I think your skill system is awesome, but I think you know even the the base the base uh the base game plays really well. So I think you could put together you know an adventure and you know a small book of all the things that are needed for that adventure, and I, I think you could do that. And he's worth every penny I'm paying him, folks. Yeah, every penny. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's the thing is, like the I, 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 two of the four of the guests, um, I've played in games and actually, you know, like I've been on the Mythos machine. I've, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've got um, the Ember book, and um, I mean, I want to see you guys do well, but I think that your products are intimidating. They're intimidating to me, and I've been doing this for twenty years. So, um, you know, I want to I want to on ramp for you guys, and I just don't see the on ramp for, you know, people that aren't as interested and invested as I am. Well, listen, for me, the complexity and the intimidation is actually a market strategy, right? Um, my sense was that given my small resources, uh, it would be impossible to compete head to head with. Um, anything, you know, Wizards of the Coast or Pinnacle or larger guys like that with big brands are going to come up with. And the mainstream gamer is always going to end up there. And so I simply decided um, I would instead make games for the players that really enjoy deep simulation or elegant math or things like that. And I'm totally okay with saying, you know, I'm only going to reach maybe 5% of tabletop gamers, but those 5% are going to completely love my game. 
but that's kind of funny because the, the sample pages that you showed us, that, that tells me the opposite. It's like once you actually understand, you know, what the um, what do you call it, what the roles are that the, the system system core is pretty approachable. It really actually it makes it to where real world things you, you got, you know, at least with the fire in the water, you've got good real world um, equivalents that that's going to be an easy system to, to grasp. I mean, it's, it's an easy sure. system if you can get over the, the, the cognitive obstacle of understanding logarithmic math, I guess, um, which a lot yeah, of people... You don't even have to know that. You just know I don't that... Think they teach that easily anymore, not in grade I school. Mean, I, mean, I, I mean, if you're just telling people that one is, is double two and, and so forth, I mean, you don't have to understand logarithmic math. You're the one that has to understand logarithms. <laughs> I mean, look, you, you might be right, and maybe the game is going to be a massive success. M my sense is that it's, it's probably going to be appreciated by the sort of people who say, wow, it's really cool that this game is built on logarithmic math. But we'll see. I mean, I, listen, I hope you're right, right? Like, you being right means I make more money, so uh, God bless you. Um, I, mean, I like, I love Powers of Two. Powers of Two are fun. But I'm, yeah. I'm a kid that was in, you know, like, uh, I was on a math team, you know, in middle school, so <laughs> I, I might be that core audience. Um, I hope so. I mean, as I said, I uh, oh, did I get my own Patreon correct? I'm like, people need a high IQ to play my game, and then I get my Patreon wrong. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay. And I don't think any of you guys are competing head-to-head -head with these guys. I mean... We as absolutely not. I like hope we all games. make a million bucks. Well, well, it's like we that like games, just the novelty of trying something different in whatever way it's different is part of the thing. And I think, well, at least in um, Alan's case, that he has really nicely explained and a emotional connection is kind of what I get to some of his stuff that's both in the book that he has published and some of the other stuff that he shared so that we can kind of, I can get a better perspective on the area where we're going to be playing. And the, what I want to say, the, yeah, it, it mostly has to do with the emotional connection. Like the way that, it, that the, the materials presented, it gives me a much different connection than something that I find in like a Wizards of the Coast, like an adventure book for fifth edition or something like that. There... Well, he got knocked in the head. We all heard it. <laughs> okay, but those were good comments, though. So we appreciate that. Thank you, Datum, and uh, good luck with that. Oh, I hope he comes back. Is he okay? Datum, are you there? <clears throat> Jeez. Oh no, I'm fine. I uh, okay. I just had to. Uh... <laughs> we heard a bump and then you disappeared. Oh, um, I had to uh, get a cat. Okay. Cool. Anyway, box set sounds like a cool idea, but for me at least, totally impractical. I just I do not have the resources to pull that kind of thing together. And it sounds like from what Arkham was saying. Uh, even if I could, the benefit of it would be maybe questionable. So I'd probably shy away from that at this point, although I'd love to do it. I think it's an awesome sounding idea. Oh, yeah. Practicality of it sounds like I probably couldn't do it. Or I'd like die on my sword trying or something. So. 
Yeah, I mean, I have all these fantasies of doing box sets for like the R Empire campaign setting, whatever. Yeah, and Frog God just released one, and it looks great. And yeah. I'm nowhere near being able to do that. <laughs> see, but see, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that's not even a box set. That's a that's a box of books. I mean, it is a cool box set, as as in a box set of their books. But it's it's not ready to play. There's no pregens. There's no whatever you use for tokens or map or anything like right. that. So mm. wait a second, Tatum. Hold on. Let me make sure that I understand what you're saying when you say box set. Are you just I'm saying, saying a playset? A playset. Okay, that's different. All right. So really, what you're saying is have a pre-prepped game available for people to just launch into. Is that what you mean right. by box set? Yeah. Oh, well, that's totally doable. I thought you meant like actually a game in a box with. Well, you know, I would. Like I mean, you know, stuff. that's. Yeah. That's one of the ways you can go, but with yours, Veeb, you've got already got the Mythos machine, and you're probably closer than anybody else to to that. Yeah, well, that's true. Right now, I'm just finishing up uh, the Fantasy World, the Wild West World, the Bushido World, and I'm about to put up the um, Science Fiction World. So and those are basically box sets. They come with pre-gen characters right. and adventures, and you sign up, and you get them, and then you're off to the races playing. And so, I would yeah. say with the Mythos Machine, the only thing that that is going to be um, your challenge at as like you know showing those things as a box set is just it the way that it's laid out is great for like what is it uh like for actually using it as the 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 storyteller. Um, it's laid out great to you know write things and and have things in different categories and that kind of stuff. But it's hard. What I what I have experienced it's a little bit harder when you're just a player to kind of get into there and know where you're supposed to go to get into yeah. there. Yeah, that um, glide path for the players, I totally agree with you. And I'm working on that right now, actually. Uh, so hopefully uh, I'll just have that completely smoothed out. It definitely needs it. What I really need is is actually I need a, a UX overhaul, I believe. And, but that's really expensive to do. And mm -hmm. I'm not a UX guy. I'm a back-end programmer guy who right. happens to be able to do front-end, but that's not the same thing. It really does need a UX overhaul, that's true. I think really if you would lead your kid, <clears throat> like a player into just, you know, choose a pre-gen and there was like, you know, like a just, a, you know, however you would want to do that. I don't know how many pre-gens you have. Maybe it's, you know, four quadrants. Yeah, four quadrants of the screen or something like that, and they just, you know, they pick that character, um, or you know, maybe they've already talked about which character they're going to play, and they just need to, you know, select it so it brings up that that sheet. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's all the, that you really need to do if you can figure out a way to do that. Right. Or what about just like one click random roll, and you just and got a completely randomized, you know, character. I mean, if you've got a, if you, if you're, I I know that Mythos is is robust enough to do that. So yeah, I mean, you know, you could do that too. Well, I do have a benefit here that I'm not sure how to bring to market yet. I have, I'm a Linux user, and you can probably tell. And <laughs> I, uh, I've decided to write, for those of you who you said you're a programmer, I've decided to write in Bash a 8,000 line character generator oh. that will spit out. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it will spit out just into, I have destroyed entire civilizations created and destroyed. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's, it's 
no more different than doing it in a more modern like Python, it's just not Python, and you're still not compiling it anyway. You just then you get a character out, and I've um, I've hooked it's a few also not things. object oriented. It's object orientation is yeah, it's a fad. Object oriented is a fad, and it's a, it's a programming <laughs> fad. It is. I mean, hey, you're not a programmer unless you're using COBOL, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, not unless you're using a soldering iron. You're not programming, so. Um, yeah, it, it does all that for me, and just I can kick out characters all over the place. I just can't export that out to everybody else to be able to generate characters with the push of a button. It's more of a tool for me to generate NPCs than anything else, and I decided, hey, what if I go ahead and do an insane amount of extra work and make this as a hobby something that the players at my table can use? I might polish it up. Well, now, Alan, in your situation, honestly, I think you have the most from what I've seen, and I haven't seen two of your guys' stuff, so I, I'm going to have to look some more, but from the two of you I know, your your world, like your lore and your, um, the, 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 what is it, the, the, I don't want to say human because not everybody in your, in your campaign setting is human, but your, 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 I'm just going to use this word because it's the only thing I can think of, spiritual connection that you have with stuff, um, in your world, um, is your strength, and I honestly think that if you did more things like actual multimedia for showing things about um, your campaign, that's what is really the biggest value add I've seen with your system. I know your initiative system is new, and I like it, but um, it's it's not the most innovative. I I like your I like your lore a lot more than I like. Uh, the system and i say that as in i like the system but i like the lore a lot more oh yeah well thanks man thanks oh um hey guys i again i'm in here cutting people off Uh, we're a little bit over and uh i know i want to be cognizant of folks time so i think we're gonna have to wrap it up here okay um well thanks so much for posting us on the show man absolutely thank you i yeah i love <clears throat> Love to talk to a few more of uh, a few of you guys a little bit more, but yeah, yeah, you guys, uh, y'all are all welcome. Um, I really, uh, really appreciate you coming on to the show and talking uh, with us tonight. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I hope that uh, I haven't run any of y'all off, and you decide to come back again sometime. Hey, sure. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, say, um, Das Machine, are you going to like have a like a podcast post to this or how does, what, what goes yeah, on? There will that? be, um, there will be, uh, and I'll share the link. In fact, if you scroll up somewhere here, I, I'm making you scroll up. I should find it. Uh, there are probably, uh, there should be a link to past podcasts on here. Uh, it's on anchor FM. Okay. And great. Great. Yeah. I'll, I'll actually share. A link. Uh, you try to get them up, uh, by Sunday. I just I need to download the file and edit it and all that if if it needs editing. So Okay, great. Great. Very cool. Thank you. Cool. Um well uh <clears throat> thanks for having we're us. Gonna, we're gonna say goodbye to Craig now. So Bye Craig. Bye Craig. Craig. Bye Craig. Thanks. And then Craig. we all then we all say Craig, leave. <laughs> <laughs>